The rich young man, uh, if you were here last week, you, you were here for that sermon where the young man came and asked Jesus, what must I do to get uh, eternal life? Well, he had scarcely left Jesus when Peter asked the question, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Throughout Matthew's gospel, many walk away from Jesus sad and deflated when they find out just how much it might cost them to follow Jesus. In Matthew 8, a scribe expressed a desire to follow Jesus, but was deterred when Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Obviously, the invitation to become homeless was not quite that appealing. Another came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. In other words, I've got some more important things to do, Jesus, and let me do these more important things, and then I will come after I finish this checklist and after I do these more important things. Jesus highlighted the urgency of the kingdom by saying, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And now we come to the rich young ruler who has forsaken Jesus because he cannot part with his possessions. So Peter's been with Jesus this whole time, and he's seen these people walk away from Jesus sad and depressed. He's seen these sad departures and begins to wonder what's in it for him. He's accepted the invitation to, holy, uh, to homelessness. He's accepted the fact that it is very difficult. He left his father, so he's not sticking around to bury his father. He left his father. And he, unlike the rich young ruler, left everything he had, his nets, his fishing boat, his career to follow Jesus. So what's in it for him? Perhaps you've had similar feelings. Sacrifice deserves a reward, right? We'd all agree with that. Hard work deserves to be recognized. Overtime should be paid generously. I mean, I'm surprised because I, I totally expected an amen somewhere around there. Maybe send this sermon to your boss or something. Dedication should be duly appreciated. Whether you've had these feelings in your job, your marriage, or your walk with Christ, the question of rewards, of what is it that you will get, needs to be addressed. I mean, that is something that is on the minds of many people. We don't like to talk about it out loud so much, but there is that, that fact that we are wondering, what exactly will we get for following Jesus? I mean, we've tried to live a God-honoring life, right? We've turned away from some of the most tantalizing sins to follow Jesus. We've faced the mocking insults of friends and family. People think we're straight up weird for believing the things that we believe. We've uh, watched as others get to go play and have fun and get all the things that they want. And we have decided not to play right now because we know it's wrong. And so we just are, are following Jesus faithfully. So then what will we get? What's in it for us? Or maybe you're someone sitting here and you're, you've not quite given up everything. You've not quite turned to follow Jesus, but you're wondering what will you get if you do? Why should you? Well, this question of reward, this question of what you will get is addressed in Matthew 19, verses 27 to chapter 20, verse 16. And here's what I think we're going to find, just to tell you the point straight off. The kingdom's reward system is based on grace, not on merit. It's based on grace, 
not on merit. Whatever reward we will receive for following and serving Jesus will be because of the overabundance of God's grace, not because of our sacrifices, not because of what we've given up, but because of what Jesus has sacrificed and because of what Jesus has done. And so, just to set the context, the rich young man turned from Jesus. Peter and his disciples have been with him through thick and thin, and he's quick to point it out. I mean, if you're standing there with a man you believe to be the king of the cosmos, this is the man who all are going to bow down to. He wants Jesus to understand what all he's given. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? At a glance, it may not seem as if, it may seem as if there's a vast difference between the rich young man and Peter, right? They seem like totally different characters. But I think if we, if we come in closer and we zoom in just a little bit more at Peter's question, we'll find they're not that different. In fact, they think in a very similar way. Both the young man and Peter viewed the kingdom as something one could gain by what they did. Something they could get based on what they've given up or what they've been like in their morality. The rich young man saw his morality and wondered what he could purchase with that morality. See, I've obeyed the commandments. See, I've been basically a good person. See, I'm not like all these evil people. What then do I still lack? Can I not buy eternal life with this? Peter has the same mindset. He just asks it in a different way. Well, Jesus, I, I'm good like him, but look at everything I've given. Look at everything I've walked away from. Look at everything I've turned aside from. Think about my father standing on the shore by himself, my empty fishing boat. Think about that. Now then, what will I get because I've given that? It's the same type of thinking. And yet, as we will see, Jesus shows that if, it's the, if the rich young man's morality did not earn him eternal life, then neither does Peter's sacrifice earn him a reward. The key there is earn him a reward. Neither eternal life nor eternal rewards are a matter of merit. How you live, what you do, what you are like, is not the reason you will have rewards from God in the kingdom of heaven. Everything we have, this sounds so simple, right? We, we, we've heard this many times, but think about how hard it is to accept this. Everything we have and everything we will have comes from the sheer grace of God. Our desire to somehow earn what we have or will have inevitably betrays our hubris, right? Our, our over-exaggerated self-confidence in what we think we can do, right? It betrays a pride. We naturally are people who want to earn. We want a stake in what we will get. We want to be able to say, yes, we will have great, rich kindness in the kingdom of God, but because of the way we live. We somehow like to put a stake in the ground and say, yes, it's by the grace of God, but not solely by the grace of God. There's been some good things I've done. I've had some skill. I've had some, had some great living, and, and I've walked away from certain things, and therefore I sort of deserve this. We, that just comes natural in the way we think. 
Now here's the thing, the young man thought too highly of his own goodness. Peter thinks too highly of his own sacrifices. And I wonder if there's some among us that think too highly of our own goodness and think too highly of what we've given up to follow Jesus. When we speak of things like our church attendance, our basic goodness, our daily Bible readings, our faithfulness in marriage, and others as proof as, uh, for why we deserve an eternal life, we follow the same error of holding to a merit-based reward system. If the rich young man and Peter had only grasped If they could only see what Jesus was about to do for them in Golgotha, what he was about to do for them on the cross, they might not have appraised themselves with such lofty self-regard. It's only in the context of Matthew, uh, really beginning in 26 to 28, that we begin to see that such boasting of how basically good we are, how much we've given, that all that seems kind of trivial in comparison to Jesus on the cross, doesn't it? If only they had seen what Jesus was about to do for them. If only they would would see that it was because the rich young man was not quite so good. And that Peter had not quite given enough. That maybe they might not have boasted about what they could have. My friends, regardless of who you are today, if you're boasting in some sense of high morality... If you're boasting in some sense of, well, I've got the right political stances. If you're boasting in the fact that you've been a basically good person. If you're boasting in the fact that you have given up a lot to follow Jesus. Let the cross silence your boasting today. Because you have nothing to boast of. You have not given enough. You have not been enough. You will never be enough, and you will never give enough. Therefore, anything you get for following Jesus will be by the sheer grace of God. And that's where we live as Christians. Now, let's prove that. I just made an overwhelming claim and hopefully bashed some of our reward system. So let's, let's prove that the reward system of the kingdom is based in grace and not on merit. Okay. Now, I want to be very clear from the outset. I'm not saying it, it doesn't matter how you live. It very much matters how you live. All I'm simply saying is that how you live is not the primary motivation or the factor of what you get. Even if you're good enough, in the new heaven and new earth, you get more than you deserve. That's the basic point. It's interesting that Jesus does not deny that there are indeed eternal rewards awaiting those who follow him. He doesn't shame Peter for asking the question. I mean, Peter's got no filter, and I'm sure some of the disciples are punching Peter in the arm saying, shut up, Peter, that's rude. <laughs> kind of like uh, when uh, your grandparents, your, your in-laws come, and your children are like, what'd you bring me? It's like, shut up, what are you You know, it's kind of awkward when somebody starts to ask what they're going to get, right? What'd you bring me? But at least Peter asks the question, and he says it, and Jesus doesn't shame him for it. And so if you're thinking it, there's grace, and Jesus will answer your question. What do you think you're going to get? He says to his disciples, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he looks ahead to the renewal of the world. He looks ahead when the new heaven and the new earth comes. 
He looks ahead and he sees himself, the Son of Man, sitting on the throne of glory. And one day, these disciples who have followed him will reign with him as judges over Israel. Now, this kind of advances this idea that we see in other places in Scripture where Jesus seats us together with him and we reign with Christ, right? So it kind of advances that idea. There are indeed rewards coming and amazing rewards at that for following Jesus. However, it's important for Jesus' disciples to understand that any rewards they get will not come because they have earned them. The truth of this is subtle, but I think once you see it, it'll become foundational to your discipleship. Let's listen carefully to what Jesus says next. Here's how Jesus defines the reward system of the kingdom of heaven. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. So he's basically saying, if you have sacrificed it all to follow me, let's just say you've given everything up, possibly imaginable, right? Let's just say that you have nothing left because you follow Jesus. Whoever does that will receive a hundredfold. A hundredfold? And whoever does that will inherit eternal life. My friends, when you look at the reward system of the kingdom, if you look at Jesus' viewpoint of rewards, if a disciple walks away from all that he has to follow Jesus, he receives a hundred times more than what he gave. That doesn't seem to be a fair reward system, now does it? Most of our reward systems are like a one-to-one correspondence. You work a certain number of hours and you get rewarded a certain number of pay. Jesus, however, says, you can give it all up and I still give you more than what you deserve. You could walk away from your finite life. You could give it up. You could lay your body on the floor and become a martyr for the kingdom. And yet, even if you give up this flesh and blood life, you inherit eternal life. Do you see what Jesus is saying? No matter what you give, no matter how well you live, everything you get in the kingdom is still by grace. You can't earn it. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's just, but it's not fair. If you give up everything, God graciously gives you a hundred times more than you gave. My friends, I'm a limited human being. I'm not paying you a hundred times more than you're worth. But God does. God does. He takes your meager little scraps of sacrifices. And he exchanges them for eternal things. Our God does that. That's grace. Even if we were to live it all, give it all, that is how God transforms our lives. That is how God, it's not this, it's not this, you get what you give kind of ideology, is it? You don't get what you give. You get more than what you give. You always get more than what you give, and you will always get way more than what you deserve. 
So from beginning to end, when you first place your faith in Jesus to the moment he begins handing you the eternal sweet things of the kingdom, the moment he hands you the goblet of the well-aged wine of the kingdom and you sip on that sweet wine with the king, it is only because he bought it for you, not because you earned it. Jerry Bridges puts it this way in his book, Transforming Grace. God saves us by his grace. He transforms us more and more into the likeness of his son by his grace. In all our trials and afflictions, he sustains us and strengthens us by his grace. He calls us by grace to perform our own unique function in the body of Christ. And then again, by grace, he gives to each of us the spiritual gift necessary to fulfill our calling. As we serve him, he makes the service acceptable to himself by grace, and then rewards us a hundredfold, guess what? By grace. It is grace from beginning to end. There's a reason why we are a sola gratis people, only grace. There's not one of us who, if we understand Jesus rightly, if we understand the gospel rightly, if we hear the sweet message of the gospel. There's not one of us that will come to the throne of Jesus when the new heaven and new earth come saying, I deserve this moment. It's time for me to get what's coming to me. Every single one of us will have our hands open and whatever it is we receive, we will know we didn't do anything to get it. It's a gift. Well, how does this affect your daily life? Very simply, it confronts why you do what you do. Is having Jesus enough of a reward for you? Are you not having an affair on your wife simply because you might get more junk and more stuff in the new kingdom if you don't? Well, that's a terrible reason not to have an affair on your wife. Are you being a basically good person because you think somehow in the kingdom's currency, so many good rewards, so many, so many months of tithing, so many uh, tax refundable donations might come back on the kingdom's roster sheet so that you can somehow exchange that for jewels and a crown? My friends, is Jesus enough of a reward for you? Why should you follow Jesus and love your wife like he has called you to? Why should you li live a holy life? Not because it's going to get you bigger treasures, but because you have the treasure. It flips your thinking upside down. Live a holy life not because of, of what you think you might earn with it. Instead, let the knowledge of God's overflowing grace motivate you to live in holiness. It is a miserable life to live in a merit-based system. Can we just be honest with each other for a second? Is there anyone but me that has ever been tempted to think that the way I live this week has somehow either earned me some more treasures or demerited some treasures? Does anybody feel like they've gotten demerits this week? I mean, I'm just being honest. Can we see a show of hands? Do you mind? I mean, let's make it a little interactive, okay? All right, so anybody feel like they ever got the merits this way? I, I, I sure did. I mean, just in the moment of, you know, weakness, in a moment when I didn't have some coffee, I just kind of felt there for a second. I felt the depression set in that I didn't quite live the life I should have this week. And maybe 
There's some deposits coming out of my heavenly bank account because of it. Here's the reality. That's miserable to live in, isn't it? There's some of us that can never even tempt ourselves to smile about the grace that we've received in Christ because we think that we haven't earned it. My friends, there's something freeing about realizing that all that you have is because of the kindness of God. He's given you what you have, and he will always give you what you will have, not because you've earned it, but because he loves you. I feed my kids not because they've earned it, but because I love them. I lavish my love on my kids, not because they've been good, not because they've earned it, not because they've done the dishes, not because they make their bed, not because they made me feel comfortable, not because they have not been a nuisance on me, but because I love them. I'm a kind and generous father. Receive the love. And you're going to spoil it the moment you think that you've earned it. The ice cream just doesn't taste as sweet when you think you've earned it. It's sweet because you haven't earned it and because it's the kindness of your father. It's the kindness of your God. We get, we get to sip on the wine of the kingdom in the new heaven and new earth knowing that we didn't plant those grapes. We didn't tread them down. We didn't ferment the wine. That was all Jesus' work. We get to sit in mansions. I don't know what that means exactly. That we didn't build. We have a seat at the table that we didn't buy. We have a reservation at the king's feast that we didn't make the phone call for. Jesus did. He put our name at that seat. Why? Because he's good. Because he's kind. Because he loves you. I don't, I don't feel worth being loved. You, you aren't. But he does anyway. We get the paycheck for Jesus' work. So what's the clear application in this? Don't be a prideful jerk about what you think you're going to get. Don't be entitled. Your entitlement offends God. You walking around with your nose in the air thinking that you're better than other people and that you're going to receive more than others offends God. Don't be an entitled jerk. Be a humble child of God that bask in the kindness of his grace. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul warns the church against being puffed up. Puffed up, it literally means when you, when you look up the Greek, it means full of hot air, full of air. Right? So there, there's puffed up. There, there's a bird that my son and I like to watch on live cam sometimes. Uh, it's, I don't even know where it's from, but it's hilarious. And when it gets around another bird that it feels threatened by, it just puffs up its chest and it walks around like this. Right? And so he warns against becoming puffed up like that. Right? And here's what he says. He levels a playing field of internal competition. For who sees anything different in you? That's what he says first off in 1 Corinthians 4. Who sees anything different in you? The actual translation there of the Greek could be rendered, who sees you as anything special? 
He goes on to ask, what do you think, what do you have that you did not receive? Now the word receive there emphasizes that whatever they have, whether it be righteousness, holiness, special skills, a status with God, whatever it is, has been, guess what? Given to them, not purchased by them, given to them. So here's his conclusion. If then you received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's a fair question for us to ask. When it comes to the reward systems that we're thinking about, what are we going to get for following Jesus? What then will we have that will not be given to us? If then it will be given and not earned, what then, why then do we boast as if we are earning eternal rewards? I mean, every single one of us, I think at some moment in time, is tempted to think in our self-appraisal of life that we've got big things coming for us because we are basically good people. Why boast like that? Everything you have will be given freely, not earned. So stop boasting. Simple applications to live in humility. Jesus is a gracious king, a gracious king, who pays his servants more than they've earned, who gives his people more than they deserve. Now, what's the danger facing those of us who fail to apply this kind of humility? Are we, I mean, sure, whatever, but we're still going to go back on Monday and think that we need to be good this week so we can have these bigger rewards. So what, what's the danger if we don't actually make a mindset change, if we don't change the way that we think about eternal rewards Well, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation warns that there's a great reversal coming in which the self-exalting, those who appraise themselves a little too highly, they're going to be humiliated. The self-exalting get humbled and the humble get exalted. Those who hang their heads high, get their heads smacked down. Those who have their heads low, gently get them raised up. That's the redemptive storyline. And guess who's at the center of that great reversal? Jesus, he's lowering heads and he's raising heads. Now, if I'm on this side of the, of the uh, redemptive storyline, I want to be one that gets my head raised, not one that gets my head smacked down. I've got a big head anyway, so it takes, it takes a lot to keep that head low. But we have a reason to, because God opposes the proud God opposes the haughty. God deflates puffed up people. You may think you don't need his grace. My friends, that is puffed up. And he deflates that quickly. Jesus says, many who are first, this comes right after he tells Peter that they will get rewards and it will be based on grace. But he says this, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, the people who are first in the kingdom are not the people that you would expect. It's not the people that are thinking they're going to be first. The people that are first in the kingdom are not the smartest, generally, are not the most self-righteous. They're not the ones who think that they have earned their way. They're not the Pharisees. Who's the first ones into the kingdom? I think it's interesting when Jesus comes, the first people who actually acknowledge Jesus as Lord, generally, you ready for this? Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, and Roman centurions. The Pharisees are the last in the line to finally get the point. My friends, if you do not humble yourself, you will be last. 
If you think, if you think that your, the way you live has earned you a special spot in the kingdom, my question would be, do you even have a spot in the kingdom? Jesus starts to give a parable here. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, a denarius is like a, it's a very generous, but it's a fair wage for a day's work. Okay. So he's promised them, I'll give you, I'll give you what, what I promise. I'll give you denarius. And then he sent them into the vineyard. So from the beginning, He's made this agreement. Here's, what I, here's my promise. I'm going to give you a denarius for a day's work. It's a fair and just payment. And then he goes to the third hour. In the third hour, he goes and he gets more workers. And he says, go into the vineyard and work, and whatever is right, I will give you. So he doesn't promise a different reward, does he? He just says, whatever is right, I'll give you. In other words, whatever I think you've earned or whatever I think is best is probably more like it, I will give you. He goes again at the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. Now, the eleventh hour is like showing up for your shift. Suppose you got an eight to nine shift, and you show up at eight thirty p.m. Okay, that is that is what the eleventh hour worker is like. They they're the last onto the scene. And when the end of the workday came, the Lord of the Vineyard commands his foreman foreman to call the workers and to pay them their wages, beginning with the last. So the eleventh hour workers come. Now, just based off of, if you've never read this, what do you expect to happen? You expect the 11th hour workers to get less than the first hour workers, right? Because in a merit-based system, that would be the case. If it is a, you get what you put into it kind of system, then yes, the 11th hour workers will get less than the first hour workers. Well, as it is, he hands them a denarius. Well, the first hour workers don't take a negative interpretation. First, they think, well, if the last hour workers got a denarius, which we were promised, surely we're going to get double that then. See, they're still working in this merit-based system. They've done more, so they should get more. They've done more, so they, receive, they should receive more pay. That's what a merit-based system does. But by the time they get up to the line, he hands them a denarius. This isn't fair. My friends, has anybody, has anybody ever felt that way? This isn't fair. How can he give everyone else the same wage as us? That's not fair. Well, they begin to grumble and then they say what we all typically think. These last work for only an hour, and you have made them equal to us. You've made them equal to us, to us, the first hour workers. We're better. You've made them equal to us. have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They're essentially accusing him of injustice. How can he treat everyone else equally when they have not all equally worked hard? Now, they're thinking he has several problems. First, they failed to see that the master had not broken his promise, did he? He did them no wrong. He, he gave them exactly what he promised them. He delivered his promise. He was absolutely righteous in what he paid. If he gave them less than what he promised, then he would have been unjust. But he gave them exactly what he promised them. Second, they failed to be grateful for being paid at all. Now, to put it back into the historic context... 
their, their, their wage system was not the same as ours, right? We typically, in our day and age, don't live paycheck to paycheck. We get like two week. some of us are on bi-monthly paychecks, right? Which means you get paid every two weeks. Um, in this system, it's a day-by-day kind of thing, okay? So they're outside waiting in this courtyard, hoping some guy comes up with a project that they'll get paid for at the end of the day so they can eat. That's the system they're on. So if nobody comes that way, if nobody hires you, you don't eat. You go without a meal. You don't have the money right there. You have to work all day, get the money, and then go buy your daily food or buy your food for the next day. They failed to see how gracious it was that he called them in the first place. They get to eat. They get to live another day. Their stomachs won't grumble though their mouths are. And yet that is little to them. Third, they failed to see that he had the authority to pay his workers as he willed. This is, I think, one of the most important things to see from what the master says. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? My friends, do you realize that God is sovereign? That he is gracious? The actual text says, is your eye wicked because of my goodness? Now, typically when it talks about wicked eyes, bad eyes, it's talking about this covetousness, this enviousness, right? And so Jesus is basically saying, this master is saying, are you envious because I've been gracious and generous to other people? My goodness, how often we fall into that. We have been saved out of the fire. We've been saved from separation from God. Let this just boom in your hearts today. You were alienated. You were dead. But the rich, gracious God of the heavens made you alive. Are you now angry and envious because he makes people you don't like alive? Because he gives life to people you can't stand? Because he set you on a mission to proclaim the mission, the message of life to people you don't like? Well, how do we do that? Now, come on, nobody does that, right? Surely nobody does that. Let me ask you, what is your reaction when I tell you that there will be prostitutes in the kingdom of heaven who have repented and believed in Jesus that will receive the same eternal life that I have as a pastor serving him for many, many decades? A prostitute will have the same eternal life that I have, though I've never prostituted myself. Okay, I could see that didn't hit quite the nerve that I wanted it to. Let me ask you this. Let's really, let's really see how we can stir up the pot here. How do you feel when I tell you that Nancy Pelosi, if she repented and came to Jesus, <laughs> would have the same access to Jesus as you do? <laughs> Just spoke blasphemy, I feel like. Are there any red dots on my chest? (laughs) I mean, we don't realize how quickly we veer into that, right? Do you realize Saul, the great persecutor of the church, God saved him. 
And he got eternal life like Peter, who willingly followed from the beginning. That's not fair, Jesus. But it is good. You don't have a fair savior. You have a good savior. You don't have an all things are just going to be equal despite the rules kind of savior. You have a savior who gives grace. Prostitutes get more than they deserve when they come to him. You, pastor, and if you are if you're an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, regardless of what you are, you will only have grace. So do not be surprised when the dirty, filthy prostitute on the street corner has the same grace you do. Does your eye get envious? How could he save them? How could they come to eternal life? My friends, I pray that you first hour workers will realize that the master can do what he wants to do with his sovereign grace. Is it not his to do what he wills and to give as he pleases? There's some of us that when we begin to realize that the kingdom of heaven is filled with prostitutes, with adulterers, with the people that have the scarlet A on their hearts, when there's people that are porn addicts that are going to be in the kingdom of heaven, when there's people that have cheated on their wife, on their spouse, when there's people that have walked away from their kids, when there's people who's voted Democrat. (laughs) And for those of you that voted the other, there's people who are those Trumpers. Either way, do you realize, does your heart unsettle at the fact that all will be in the kingdom of heaven by the grace of God? All who are there are meant to be there because Jesus wanted them there, not because they earned it. My friends, this is my biggest fear of the church, for the church is that we dupe ourselves into believing that our goodness has bought us a special status with God. If you're coming to church and, you, and your motivation, I don't want to go to church today, but I'm going to go to church because if I miss a certain number of churches and I might miss out on a certain number of gold coins in the kingdom of heaven, my friends, you've got to repent of that. You've got to repent of that Quickly. Because that will lead you down a life of misery and surprise. And when you get to the king, you might just find yourself last in line while you lived your whole life expecting to be first. None of this, of course, is to say that all things are equal in the kingdom. There is scriptures that talk about God's people being rewarded for their faithfulness, that people will be Uh, rewarded according to the way they lived. However, even that, though, is meant to be read in the context of grace. Even that, even if there is different rewards in heaven, it's still based on grace. Everybody gets more than what they deserve. Why are they rewarded in the first place? That's the question we should be asking. Not how much do they get? Why do they get anything? That's the question we should be asking. It is not your labors that have purchased your good and blessed future in the kingdom. It is not your work. It wasn't your blood that gave you access to God in the first place who will then give you rewards. Your, even your access, your ability to approach God, your ability to sit at the king's table 
has come because of somebody else's work for you. Their death for you. My friends, there will be no one puffed up sitting at the kingdom's table. Ephesians 2 does not say that in the coming age, God's people will receive what they earned. Quite the contrary, it says that we will receive the immeasurable riches of what? Grace, God's grace in, guess what? Kindness toward us. Grace in kind. I, I, I've never been able to picture that because grace sounded so cool. And the fact that kind, a kind God, that we have a kind God, that's amazing. But then you take grace and you put it in kindness. I mean, that's like an ice cream cake. That's amazing, right? This is sweet upon sweet. This is more than you can handle. Grace in kindness, guess what? Forever. And it's not just grace in kindness forever. It is rich grace. And not just rich grace, but the riches, plural, of his grace in kindness to you forever. Oh, but my church attendance got me that. It doesn't. My friends, the wine of the kingdom comes from grapes that you did not plant. Your seat was built by somebody else, not by you. Your place in the kingdom of heaven has not been purchased by your morality or by your sacrifices. So how then can we remain prideful? We have followed you, Jesus, for decades, our whole life. We've been to church. We've read our Bibles. What then will we have? Here's the simple answer. By God's overabundant, gracious kindness, you will have abundantly more than you deserve. There's your answer. Now, I do want to address some others in the room. So that whole sermon is for those of us like me who tend to hold our heads very high. But we also know that there are people who hold their heads very low. There's some people who don't feel like they deserve anything. They don't deserve to be in the kingdom. They, they hang their heads in shame. Well, I want to give them a little bit of an encouragement and tell them to take heart. You may know just how much, well, you probably don't know, but you know a glimpse of just how much you wrecked your life. We have people in our church that have completely messed up their future. We have people in our church that have completely broken their family. And from their own words, I don't think I deserve anything. Guess what? Someone who knows that they're broken and that they don't deserve anything is actually in a better spot than someone who thinks they do. We all need that kind of brokenness. We all need to be coming low, laying bare before the Lord and saying, you know what? We don't deserve. So if your head already hangs in shame, you're in a good position because it's the tax collector whose head hung in shame as he beat his chest that went home justified and the Pharisee who lifted his eyes to the heavens who didn't. If your head hangs in shame because of what you done, you've done, you're one step ahead of someone whose head is held high because of what they've done. You're a little closer to being able to feel the lifting hand of Jesus on your, ch your chin to lift your head. And that's his grace. So take heart. 
If your head hangs low because of your sin, you are in the perfect posture to receive Jesus' loving hand, raising your head to receive the joy of his grace. It was a prostitute caught in the midst of adultery that was most ready to see Jesus as the gracious Lord that he was. It was a tax collector who knew that he betrayed his nation that was in a position to receive Jesus as Lord and Messiah. It was a Roman centurion who knew about his whole, his whole pagan, his whole pagan system that was ready to see Jesus could simply speak a word and the servant would be healed. It was two demoniacs, naked men. Okay. Shameful men, people who had been homeless and living in caves and tortured by demons themselves that were ready to leave all and follow Jesus while the Pharisees were ready to stay in their temple. My friends, it is far better for you to have a low hanging head and come to Jesus to lift it than for you to have a high head and not know it. Be humble. Life becomes altogether more enjoyable and sweeter when you realize it comes from the overflowing kindness of God. My friends, can you imagine how much better your coffee might taste in the morning, walking by the ocean and hearing the waves might sound, experiencing the wind in the trees, just sitting on the front porch and enjoying the warm spring air, holding your wife's hand, holding your children, holding your grandchildren, working at your job. Can you imagine how much sweeter that would be when you live in the constant daily reality that all of that is God's kindness? Can you imagine how great the first cup of the wine of the kingdom will taste when you realize, I didn't earn this. Oh, it'll taste so much better. Jesus sacrificed himself. It was his labor. He took the wrath for your sins. He died for your death. He was buried in a tomb that belonged to you. And yet when he rose, we became the recipients of his rich and resurrected life. It was the fruits of his kingdom that were given to us by his grace, not by our merit. So let's not solely the beautiful grace of God by talking about what we will have because of what we have done. May we be a group of people, a church, who bask in the fact that everything we have is grace and only grace and will be so forever. Whatever wages we are waiting for, whatever wages are waiting for us in the kingdom of heaven are the wages of grace. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for humble hearts. God, I pray for lifted heads for those that hang their heads low. I pray for heads to be brought down into brokenness for those that hold their heads high. Father, I pray that we will be a humble people knowing that we have been given paychecks that we did not work for, that we will be given riches that we did not earn, and that from beginning to end, from the moment we first started following you to the day that we meet you is grace and only grace. Thank you for giving us the wages of grace. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.